0: Well, welcome back. Thanks for allowing us a week off with vacation next week. Uh, we're back to the Westminster Confession of Faith class, and we're uh, very close to the end. Tonight we study Chapter 31 of Synods and Councils. And uh, one of the most important chapters to go to to see the idea of Presbyterianism as it is uh as it has its natural, logical development into denominationalism, the idea that we should be in a denomination beyond the the one church. Um, Chapter 15 is not the only place we go, but it's a particularly good place to go. Uh, And so I'd like to just read for you, uh, read with you, uh, in Acts 15 to start our study tonight on synods and councils. Hear now the word of the Lord. And certain men, which came down from Judea, taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question." And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phenis and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees, which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them, and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider of this matter. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago God made choice among us, that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, they, therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus we shall be saved, even as they. Then all the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. And after they held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written, After this I will return, and will build again the tabernacle of David, which is fallen down, and will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord, And all the Gentiles, upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all all these things. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Wherefore, my sentence is, that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollution of idols, and from fornication, and from things strangled, and from blood, For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. Then pleased it the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas surnamed Barsabbas and Silas, chief men among the brethren. And they wrote letters by them after this manner. The apostles and elders and brethren send greeting unto the brethren which are of the Gentiles in Antioch, in Syria and Cilicia, forasmuch as we have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying ye must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good unto us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have sent, therefore, Judas and Silas, who shall also tell you the same things by mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that ye abstain from meats offered to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication, from which, if ye keep yourselves, ye should do well. Fare ye well. So when they were dismissed, they came to Antioch. And when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the epistle, which when they had read, they rejoiced for the consolation. And Judas and Silas, being prophets also themselves, exhorted the brethren with many words and confirmed them. And after they had tarried there a space, they were let go in peace from the brethren unto the apostles. Notwithstanding, it pleased Silas to bide there still. Paul also and Barnabas continued in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And some days after Paul said unto Barnabas, let us go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they do. And uh, actually the rest of this uh, part we don't really need to read for sake of time. It's kind of interesting. You want to keep Acts is particularly interesting. You want to hear the next thing and next thing. And there, there's more that is related to this chapter in Acts, but we're going to leave it there for now. It's sufficient to see what we'll talk about tonight. And, of course, with the Confession are a whole lot of Scripture references you could look at besides that. But if someone would ask you, why Presbyterianism? uh, We talked about that already, uh, but it's the plurality of elders. Why denominationalism? Why a denomination? Why is a church supposed to be part, formally, connected and covenanted, accountable and uh, helping and serving others? And uh, Acts chapter 15 is a really good one. Now, of course, because of sin... This isn't perfect, you know. I remember in seminary, there's a big picture of Presbyterianism, and it's just incredibly broken. So many divisions, so many, you can't keep track of it. It's just this big brackets, you know, and it's just just a mess. So we don't want to pretend that Presbyterians have done any better, but we at least recognize uh, what is true and right to do, and that we should strive for it, um, regardless of how much we live up to it. Okay, I do want you to see, once again, uh, there's a principle of how we determine what we do in Scripture. Uh, some things are spoken to directly, and some things are given to us by example and model. So we, we see the mode and the example of church government in these kinds of things. Okay, What's happening here is shown to us of what church should look like beyond the local church. Okay? they had an issue at a local church they said you know what this is a big deal we need to take this to the broader church and they assemble in Jerusalem and they have a church court of assembled elders uh, apostles right presbyters and they discuss the situation notice again that peter and paul are coming sharing about what's happening in the mission field in the church in the churches they're not the ones at the top ruling that's important to recognize again with what we looked at recently james is the one that makes the declaration on behalf but certainly not not over it on his on his own but he they make this decision they agree this is good and they agree to send letters back to these churches guiding and directing them Uh, it doesn't appear to me that these are options especially when you consider the topic are you saved by circumcision (laughs) you know no we're saved by Jesus so Uh, We have some recommendations, a few basic things, but we don't want to burden you with more than we should. That, I think, is an important principle for Presbyterians, frankly. Don't burden local churches with more than you should to be able to have unity and togetherness. Uh, But they do send back formal decisions that the churches are expected to understand and carry out as part of the whole. They are not acting independently. There is no such thing as independent churches in the Scriptures. Okay? Okay. Now, right now, we technically are still an independent church, a Presbyterian independent church, which, if you know anybody that knows Presbyterian pretty much, they're going to very quickly say is an oxymoron. Okay? It's completely inconsistent with the confessions and our scriptures. And as you know, we've been working for a long time to try to to try to fix that. I'll tell you what, it's a lot harder to get in than it is to be in. <laughs> it's amazing what's tolerated if you are in, let alone... Uh, If you're allowed to be brought in, but we're working hard at it. And uh, I'll talk a little bit more about that as we go, because we think that it's scriptural. Therefore, it's important. And it's also confessional. Therefore, it's important. Okay, And of course, the whole context of the Westminster Confession was the Church of England. Right. And really, the Church of Scotland and, you know, all having this same reformed confession and faith to go by and live by. It wasn't the idea that there would be churches that aren't part of this. It's making a idea and it is. Now, the fact that it doesn't go where it should, especially in England, is beside the point. But that is the endeavor. That's the concern, okay, that we would be united as the body of Christ, right? And we're so divided. And that is one of the things that really weakens our witness. It also really weakens our ability to discipline, because you can just run to the church down the street, and they're not going to ask any questions because they just want your butt in the pews and your money in their pocketbook. Now, I'm exaggerating, but that's often not so exaggerated, okay? It's so easy when churches are so divided, to get away with a lot more than you would if we were together and working together as one under Christ, okay? But I do want to recognize we, this is an area that we're, you know, we say churches are more or less pure. We are less pure in this area, but we're trying to fix it, Okay? And we want to recognize that Presbyterianism, though this is true, has doesn't have a great track record on this either. Okay. That being said, uh, remember Acts chapter 15 as an important place to go. And uh, we're going to start now with section one, chapter 31. We're studying tonight of synods and councils. Sometimes we also speak about general assembly. Kind of depends on the denomination. Um, you know for instance in dutch reformed churches they don't usually say session i think they say consistory so there can be different names sometimes like we have a general assembly in our denomination we don't have something called a synod the rpcna their highest uh, gathering is called synod or you could say broadest gathering i don't think they have general assembly they have presbyteries then they have synod I'm not really sure what the difference is. I suppose I should know, but I'm not going to pretend that I do. Uh, But nonetheless, synods, councils, you might put in there for our purposes, general assemblies, okay? Section 1 of chapter 31 of synods and councils. For the better government and further edification of the church, there ought to be such assemblies as are commonly called synods or councils. Now notice that, assemblies, like gathering together to discuss fellowship, make decisions, go back to the local churches. So it's not something we're doing all the time. In fact, our general assembly is only every two years because we're rather small and rather stretched out geographically, but also modern technology helps us cover a lot of ground. Um, Notice it's for better government. You know, if there's something going on in the local church and people have a concern that the local session pastor could be corrupt and are not doing justice on an issue, ideal is that they can appeal to a higher court presbytery and then to synod or general assembly now a lot of people who lament that don't realize how many things the presbytery would send back to the local church because a lot of people are not really doing things right or dealing with the right things but still that's an option however i'll also say i've had many ministers say to me that i'm in a very precarious situation as a pastor because I have no recall for myself. I have no fellow presbyters. I have no other ministers or church. I have no other court to go to when I can be attacked by the people. The farthest I can go is with a session. And, of course, you know, the people are going to say, well, the session is just in the pastor's pocket and, you know, whatever they want to say. And to be able to go to a higher court and also make an appeal or a defense, you know, it's not just for the people. It's also for the pastor or the elders, that we would have a higher court to go to, okay? Or send something to if we think it needs needs to be dealt with in a higher or broader court for wisdom of other issues. Well, let's start with the notes. Page 212. Denominations are necessary, are a necessary extension of the local plurality of elders. Okay, so we taught Presbyterianism is plurality of elders. No bishop, no one person running the show, right? In a local church. So the logical thing that should stem from that, well, there's a plurality of churches. There should be plurality of elders in every church. And so there should be some kind of continuity in working together. It's just a logical idea, right? Uh, Engelsma, David Engelsma with the PRCA, um, Engelsma writes, quote, The unity of the church demands not only that the members of the local congregation live at peace, but also that the congregation be joined in a federation of congregations. Further, churches should not exist in isolation or be unrelated to each other. Now, uh, I'm going to be tempted to go through a lot of the footnotes. Uh, I think I'm going to try not to do that to actually let you end a little earlier tonight. But uh, I encourage you to go through the footnotes. There's a lot of pretty important stuff in the footnotes, uh, but I think I'm going to mostly pass over them. Uh, First, but you'll notice I'm thinking about that because of that footnote, but I'm going to move on. First, presbyteries are assemblies of church sessions, usually several times a year. Uh, That is, presbyteries usually gather several times a year, and they are geographically related. So, you know, for instance, in the RPCNA, there's the Pacific Coast Presbytery, because they're rather small compared to other denominations, though much bigger than ours. Uh, They go all the way up to Seattle. They extend to Las Vegas. It's kind of like a West Coast thing. There's the Great Lakes. When I was uh, uh, in the RPCNA, I was in the uh, Presbytery of the Alleghenies. I was in the Pits- Pittsburgh area, I included some Ohio, West Virginia, and even included Maryland. You know, So it's, it's kind of a geographic area. There's the Great Lakes, Presbytery, that kind of thing. Um, so they usually meet several times within a geographic range to discuss and decide on church business. Uh, same reason the session meets, really, usually monthly, regularly, because there's just always a whole bunch of stuff to talk about, stuff to be prepared for, thinking ahead, like you would run any business, practically, right? If a business never has meetings, never meets with its managers and thinks ahead, well, that's not a very well-run business, right? You've got to be proactively thinking, and you want to be able to not deal with things last minute, But also you want to be able to deal with things positively. It's not just about negative stuff, but thinking ahead to maximize opportunities. So Presbytery wants to do the same thing as broader churches. We usually get a report from each church, and you want to know how each church is doing. A lot of times, oh, wow, I didn't realize that. i am be praying for that. Or you make connections. Like when we were at General Assembly, I'll mention some neat connections we've made. But you want to know about the broader church, serving and loving the broader church. Other congregations, you hear about good things and challenging things they're going through. And everybody prays. Usually after the congregational presentation, you pray for that church. You know, there's But then there's issues that might arise in a certain church. Presbytery has to decide if they're going to deal with it in a disciplinary way. Uh, they may send it back to the local church. If they think it's significant enough, they might deal with it. If that doesn't seem to get resolved, then that might be sent to the broader or higher court of synod or general assembly. But, you know, you don't, just, you don't just wing it once in a while when something comes up, of course. That's not good management, right? So that's why they meet regularly. I think my experience was presbyteries usually, I think, four times a year, maybe twice. But uh, synods, councils, or general assemblies are regular meetings, usually annually, of presbyteries within a national, sometimes international denomination. Session continues to focus great time and attention on this need of our church. And by the way, we've been working on it for about eight years. And it's been exhausting. And we've worked on it hard with a number of denominations in the States. Uh, one of our efforts included going to Australia for five month, five weeks, excuse me, myself and my four children. And um, uh, it's right now uh, we're uh, grounded in the RPCGA and uh Affiliate relations, but it's been years, as you know, trying to qualify for certain things we've had to get right, uh, get settled like the incorporation, but then also just my examination and the different things they're communicating back and forth with us. It would be so much easier to just say, "Yeah, we don't need to worry about that, <laughs> especially when a lot of times it just seems to, you know, disintegrate after an enormous amount of effort Um but we're going to keep trying. We've been doing it for at least eight years with intense and intricate communications with various denominations. Um, and, you know, we used to be in the OPC. I think they left before I was born. I won't comment on why we're not anymore, uh, but as a church, we do have the understanding that we should be in a denomination. And so we have to manage the different issues. Every every denomination has its flavor, you know, uh, you know, we were hoping to be in a denomination consistently, acapella cappella for instance, among other things, Westminster Standards. Um, but you have to kind of determine who's going to let you in based on one thing they don't like about you, even if they tolerate it with other churches in their denomination. That's what we dealt with in one place. It's like, but you have other churches and pastors that believe this? Why? You know, just just kind of what happens because you're dealing with the local presbytery sometimes. Um so, uh, you know, you, you're, you're really looking with that view of churches that are more or less pure from our confession and seeking a home. Uh, please pray for the Lord to guide us in being yoked to a presbytery in a denomination. Again, we're presently in affiliate relations with the RPCGA. And we're seeking full fraternal relations. <clears throat> and frankly, I don't know where it's going to end. Really, really, really would appreciate your prayers. Um but we're doing our due diligence, and we're hoping. But I would encourage you to be praying for us with John Murray's sobering words to heed, which I have for you here in the notes. The sure road to decline and eventual heterodoxy is exclusive absorption with the work and witness of the local congregation. Further, while condemning the World Council of Churches saying John 1721 must not be divorced from John 1720 Murray writes while spurious unity is to be condemned the lack of unity among churches of Christ which profess the faith in its purity is a patent violation of the unity of the body of Christ and of that unity which the prayer of our Lord requires us to promote now John Murray had his own moving on to another denomination starting another denomination so it isn't that we wouldn't think there's not ever a place for that, um, but he is recognizing you ought to be in a domination. Okay? John Murray is a significant Scottish theologian, have a lot of his books in our library. He writes a lot about church government. You'll see a lot of footnotes in the last chapter and this chapter on, on these topics. Um, and again, you'll see a very long footnote there on this page that I won't get into, but it's all extremely worth reading Uh, if this is new for you. And if if it's not new, it's extremely good for it it to be reading. Um, But let me go to the next section, top of page 213, Confession of Faith, Chapter 31, Section 2. As magistrates may lawfully call a synod of ministers and other fit persons to consult and advise with about matters of religion, So if magistrates be open enemies to the church, the ministers of Christ of themselves by virtue of their office or they with other fit persons upon delegation from their churches may meet together in such assemblies. Again, when we speak about a presbytery gathering, general assembly or synod or council, we're talking about gatherings. We're talking about people from the different churches getting together to talk and decide on things. Which, by the way, as we'll be reminded tonight, is what the Confession of Faith is from. Okay? Um, Let me me share with you here. There's two different sides of the coin being spoken of here. First, here is another challenging section to understand in relation to Chapter 23, Section 3 of the Confession, and Chapter 30, Section 1, and 31, Section 1, we've looked at. Now, because what they're saying is the government can call assemblies of the church. And boy, American Presbyterians, they get rid of this, man. They, or even the RPs, they, they say what they don't agree with about this in their testimony while they leave it alone in terms of keeping the confession. Their testimony is the authority when it has a formal official disagreement with the confession. This is one of those places, again, like we've, like we've talked about before, in terms of church and state relations. Now, remember, this is in the context of they believe in a state church. They believe the nation should be Christian. And there should be an official church of the state. So this is not discussing church and state should be completely separated, have nothing to do. You can believe whatever you want. You know, you want to go ahead and put up uh, Satan next to the Ten Commandments. And I think it was Detroit. Go for it. By the way, that stuff happens, right? All religions go. Then why, why are you allowed to have the Ten Commandments up in the courthouse? Take them down and put up my statue of Lucifer. That stuff's happening in our country. Okay, so... I won't get back into the establishmentarianism, or you know how we don't believe in uh, or disestablishmentarianism; those words came up earlier. But keep that in mind. Now that, keeping that in mind, if they only mean here consult and advise the magistrate or the government, certainly this is agreeable. I mean, if, if, if President Biden right now, or let's say Governor Newsom. Forget whatever we may or may not think about them. Pick a different name. If they said, I'd like to have ministers of your reformed churches meet with us and advise me and the government about making our state or our nation more pleasing to the God of the Bible. We're going to just say forget it because I don't like you? Are you kidding me? We should jump at that opportunity, right? Um... I suppose we have the right to decline, but what they're saying is the government has the right to ask, right? Uh, perhaps they wouldn't enforce. I don't think that's what they're saying. But uh, this is things; these are things that seem pretty foreign to us in our modern culture and in our country, but that's what they're discussing. And by the way, uh, we uphold what's being said here. We don't take an exception, as a lot of Presbyterian churches do in America. Okay. Some think, however... Uh, that what follows in this paragraph seems to suggest the norm would be assemblies as only called by the magistrate, king as head of the church, while the churches may meet on their own if the king is corrupt. A lot of people say, well, what this is saying is you can't meet unless the king calls upon us. I don't think that's fair interpretation of it, but that's kind of a lot of why there's a rejection here. The Church of Scotland adopted the Westminster Confession of Faith as this is, with a disclaimer about this paragraph to make sure it's understood correctly. The RPCNA rejects it outright in its constitutional testimony, and most American Presbyterian churches have rewritten it. So that's the other thing you got to make sure you know when you're at a Presbyterian church, which Westminster standards are they using. And if it's something other than the original, uh, then it's usually changed these kinds of things. And uh, whether or not they volunteered that in footnotes, I, I don't know. Um, it is this kind of issue for which the Scottish covenanters suffered greatly during the killing times. Our church does not take exception here, correctly interpreted and applied. Uh, You can go to that, um, let me see, I might want to, there's one footnote by, by, uh, yeah, you can go to that footnote for a little bit of that. I'm going to stay with the notes, but there is a there is a footnote that I'm going to keep an eye out for that I think I would like to read for you later. Let's stay with the notes for now. Van Dixhorn reminds us, top of page 214, Van Dixhorn reminds us that the Westminster Assembly itself was called by the long parliament. A What re- if it was like the House of Representatives or something, right? The, the Westminster Assembly, the gathering, they called the Westminster Assembly. Why? Because they were assembling at Westminster Abbey. I've been there. And they were assembling to for seven years to determine all of this that we're studying for the church state, for the state to be more reformed and Christian and the, and the church to be so, okay? So we have to remember, that's that's the context of this whole thing, okay? Um, further, he says, a revolutionary political body engaged in a civil war with forces loyal to King Charles I. They were in the middle of civil war, taking out the king, <laughs> And they were looking to uh, become less Catholic. Uh, sadly, not less Arastanian, but nonetheless, uh, Van Warren cites. Now, these scriptures would be important if you want to study this more. If this perplexes you, or just uh, is you're curious, he cites Isaiah 2 Chronicles nineteen eight to 2 Chronicles twenty-nine and thirty, and Proverbs eleven fourteen as text that they. Would writing this would have understood to apply to what they're talking about. As well, this Confession of Faith was first entitled The Humble Advice of the Assembly of Divines, now by authority of Parliament, sitting at Westminster concerning a Confession of Faith. You've got to recognize that's the whole context of what they're saying. Now, look back here. I don't really comment on, on this section here, but at the second part of Part 2, back at the top of page 213, Confession of Faith 31.2, it does say That's, that should be no problem. But if the magistrates be open enemies to the church, then the ministers can gather, they don't, they don't have to wait on the they don't have to get approval from the government to assemble as the church. Okay, remember what we studied last week. The civil government is not over the church. They have no authority over the church, they have authority over the state. They are not completely unrelated. Okay? They're not mutually exclusive. They're both under Christ and his leadership. Nonetheless, we remember from the last study, not last week, two weeks ago, the state is not in authority over the church, so that applies to the, 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 the higher courts, the broader courts of the church, okay? They don't, they, don't have, uh, they don't have the final say, and they can't tell us not to meet, okay? So they are recognizing here, if we are in a place where the church is, the government's corrupt, and they're not supporting Christianity, and they're even against it, well, they, we can still meet. I think that's important to recognize, and not overreact to the first part of it, Okay? Let's look back at page 214, section 3 of the Confession. It belongeth to synods and councils ministerially to determine controversies of faith and cases of conscience, to set down rules and directions for the better ordering of the public worship of God and government of his church, to receive complaints in cases of maladministration, and authoritatively to determine the same, which decrees and determinations, if consonant to the word of God, are to be received with reverence and submission, not only for their agreement with the word, but also for the prop power whereby they are made, as being an ordinance of God appointed thereunto in his word. Now, you might be kind of having a little bit of a, yeah, but, yeah, but, uh, what about, I'm, I'm, I'm almost interrupting myself, but I'm going to get there on the notes. So, are there any places to have... Uh, you know, a disagreement uh, on certain smaller matters. But we'll get to that. Top of page 215. The purpose of synods and councils is to rule over the faith and life of the church. So long as their decisions are, quote, consonant to the word of God, they have to be biblical. They have to be proven to be biblical, by the way. It's completely legitimate for your church or a presbyter to raise your hand and say, help me out here. Help us see this from Scripture. You don't just tell us this is true. Therefore, we have to do that. So, for instance, in one presbytery we were seeking to get in for a while, gave them a whole lot of stuff on the issue of common grace, woman offer, and we were met with them for like eight hours. And a few months later got back, and they never provided anything to show us that we were wrong or they were right on the matter. And we, we just, you know, they eventually said, you just have to agree, but they never provided anything for us to try to prove or demonstrate you know, we'd, we'd be willing if we could be convinced, you know. So um, notice it has to be constant to the word of God. It's got to be able to be demonstrated to be the case too, okay? Um, they are authoritative. That If they are the case, they are authoritative and to be submitted to. Quote, the confession rejects the principle of the independence or congregationalists, that all church authority resides in the local congregation, and that wider assemblies have only an advisory role. By the way, that's most of the churches in America. You understand? Most churches in America believe only in the local congregation. A lot of times they don't have elders. Uh, not run by a plurality of elders anyways. But uh, a lot of churches are independent or congregational. Now, you should, we should remind us, there were Westminster divines. There were very godly, gifted ministers who were part of the Westminster Assembly who were independents and who were congregationalists. And they kind of offered their, you know, dissension to these things in the matter. But the Presbyterians were the main body, and they made this document Presbyterian, okay? And what they're teaching is to be a church in isolation from any other church is unbiblical. And if we're going to say we stand for the Westminster Standards, but we're not in a broader denomination, then we are being inconsistent, I mean, I see lots of churches that say they hold to the Westminster Standards and they're violating a whole bunch of things about it. <laughs> a lot of people could care less. But we're concerned to not say one thing and do the other, unless we have a really good reason. But I've never, we've never found that the Westminster Standards are, are, uh, are wrong about these things. Okay? Now remember, when we first started this whole study about these ministers the amount of time they poured into this and all the checks and balances. I'm not going to get into that again, but it's it's pretty trustworthy. It doesn't mean if we found something we think is wrong, we wouldn't choose to disagree. Um, But if it's clearly biblical and sometimes we just have to be educated about it, um, we need to pay attention to this. And especially as we are an independent church at the moment, this is something we've got to be sobered up by. The confession rejects independence congregationalists, that all church authority resides only in the local church, and anybody that might be involved is only in an advisory role, but can have nothing really to do about it in the end. Okay, so for instance, uh, maybe in the local church, uh, you know, the, the minister is really corrupt, really running the show unbiblically, session doesn't want to deal with it, or is in on it. Unless the congregation really has the guts to do something about it, they have no course of Nothing they can do about it. You have a presbytery that they're a part of. The presbytery can take away the credentials of a minister. Uh, the presbytery can be involved. They, they won't force you to have a minister or take them out, but they can decide if a minister or, or a church or something's happening. They can step in and get involved to help maintain purity. But otherwise, you know, you can't do anything about it. It's the same thing we've said to people wanting to join the church. They say, look, at the end of the day, if you're not a member, we can advise you, we can love you and relate with you, but we, actually, we can't actually do anything for you or about you. I mean, we can't demand anything because you're not in any formal covenant with us. And the uh, same thing, we need to have that covenant more broadly to have that kind, of, that kind of help and assistance. You know, because similar, like, you know, the church here in San Diego, the RP Church, they've had some really, really difficult situations, as you know, the last couple of years. Presbytery and the denomination just can't turn a blind eye to that. They send ministers, some retired, some on different committees. They have committees to help different kinds of situations. They send People, a long time, that church didn't have enough elders to be able to keep their own church going. So they sent provisional elders from other churches within the presbytery to keep it going, to come and meet and help with the pastor ruling regularly. You see, it's an obligation, just as this is an obligation from session to serve the people. It's an obligation to the presbytery and the General Assembly to serve the local churches. It's more of a responsibility and commitment that the churches aren't left alone, but are supported and helped. And at the end of the day, right now, anybody we might ask for help for, they can't do anything but advise. They might even show up and try to speak on our behalf, but at the end of the day, there's nothing they can do for us. And that's uh, that's, uh, a practical explanation of why this is important. Back to the notes. Again, this is the biblical example of Acts chapter 15 and Acts chapter 21. Now, I would have liked to have gone to chapter 21 to see some follow-up from 15 with you, but for sake of time, I'm not going to do that. But you might might go read chapter 21 before you go to bed, just to see more of, of what's being borne out here. Where Paul himself met with and reported to the assembly in Jerusalem and respected and carried out their decisions. Quote, The council of Jerusalem did not merely give advice but pronounced an authoritative decision and the churches were not disobedient to the will of the council. That's Charles Hodge. By the way, earlier I quoted uh, Green. I don't think I credited him there. Kind of counting on you of noting those quotation marks and footnotes, but I I like to try to quote who I'm quoting if it's not in the immediate text. Uh, The New Testament churches were one interdependent church. Quote, "The believers in every place in the New Testament were associated in separate but not independent churches for they all remained subject to a common tribunal." That's Burkhoff. He also Burkhoff helpfully explains this issue of the loci of authority. That's where is the place of authority. I remember in the doctrine of the church class this was discussed a lot. Where is the authority? You know, is it in the local churches? Is it in the Presbytery? Is it in the Synod? In a way, the answer is yes. <laughs> you know, but um, uh, he explains, I think, in a way that's helpful. Uh, he says, the major, the major assemblies do not represent a higher kind of power than is vested in the consistory or session. The Reformed churches know of no higher kind of ecclesiastical power than that which resides in the consistory or the session. At the same time, their authority is greater in degree and wider in extent than that of the consistory. Church power is represented in greater measure in the major assemblies than in the consistory, just as apostolic power was represented in greater measure in 12 than in a single apostle. Ten churches certainly have more authority than a single church. There is an accumulation of power. Uh, You know, really, our country's government is is borrowing from Presbyterianism. And so, for instance, um, while certain states, I mean, Senate, we all have the same amount of representatives for each state. I think I got that right, right? I've because I've been practicing with Mommy for her citizenship test. But, but representatives, the number depends on how many people are in the state. You know, California has a lot, right? But California doesn't have the right to just tell the rest of the country what to do, <laughs> right? as much as they might like to. <laughs> or, you know, like Rhode Island has a say in the matter. Not as big a voice, but a voice. Votes, right? Yeah, Becky. Well it's like that what happened with the overturning of Road V Way. Yeah. The fact that people think that it was overturned, they say, no, this is not a federal matter. This goes back to the states. Well it is in a sense of it's no longer federally imposed on all states. So it's not a law of the land that abortion has to be tolerated at, in, in each state. It used to be that it was federally forced upon us by Roe v. Wade, and frankly, in the branch of government that has no business doing that, right? But um, it was federally mandated that every state had to allow abortion. That's been removed. But sadly, what has yet to be done that I think should be done is it also has to forbid it in every state. It now allows it to be a state-by-state choice. So, but, but generally speaking, when we, like, let's say, vote for the president of the United States, Every state is turning in what they vote on, right? There's a, it's kind of like that with presbyteries, churches into a presbytery, presbyteries into the wider whole of the nation. That's the idea, right? There is a broader representation. Uh, there's a more higher development. Now, with things that matter at that higher, broader level, right? The local church has its allowances and uh, idiosyncrasies, right? Every church has its own culture and things, um, might have certain expectations not required elsewhere but so these are really it's not just about everything you know it's not about you know a presbytery doesn't get to decide whether we're going to have carpet or not which my understanding is you ever change a carpet in a church that's a big deal <laughs> you know? but, but um, it, it's not any little minuscule thing but things that are naturally relate to the broader churches which you see that in acts chapter 15 uh, there's a gathering of the churches as a whole okay um, back to the notes after footnote 646 we might say rather than higher church courts, broader church courts, though not without a ruling nature, by vote of presbyters, not a decision of a small elite group. See, that's the thing you've got to remember. When presbytery makes a decision, it's all of those who have a right to vote, um, elders and ministers, not deacons. They all have a right to vote from the local churches gathered in the assembly. In that broader church court and then if they're gathered as a general assembly or as a synod same thing all of the elders get to vote but it isn't like we all bring it to a high judicial court of nine people or something and we hope and pray that they decide right no it's everybody representing all the churches so there it isn't like there's this highest elite group it's still the representation of the people it's almost like electoral votes, right? They vote on our behalf, uh, but there's that, that, it's very similar, okay? Um, Van Dixmoren reminds us with disclaimers that, quote, it cannot be forgotten that a synod also serves authoritatively. It is because Christ gives his power and because we follow his word that assemblies have limited power and real power. The word of God is always to bind the consciences of Christians, and those who speak truly from it should be heeded. The difference between the private opinions of some people and the confirmed decisions of councils is seen in Acts 15. They refer to their decisions as requirements, verse 28, as decisions reached by the apostles and elders to be delivered and observed, chapter 16, verse 4 of Acts. Now, the RPCGA, our denomination's Book of Church Order, does allow for leniency on non-essentials for local pastors and congregations. Each denomination can vary on what is or isn't non-essential. <laughs> That's the challenge of getting into a Presbyterian denomination. You know, One denomination, we have all these things in common, but there's one issue that for them is just this gigantic issue. And it's like, come on, that should be, give us a break. <laughs> you know, but it's pretty common that you find those things. Um, And what I think Session would agree with me would be much smaller issues uh, that really should just be left alone to local churches uh, become just a block uh, of moving forward. Um, But I I want you to know the RBCGA BCO does have sections that talk about uh, latitude for ministers in the denomination and the local churches. In my opinion, quite a bit of latitude, and that's the kind of thing I plan on us to appeal to over time as need be. Uh, But as you experience our denomination, there's a lot of latitude. There is, it's a pretty broad experience, actually. There are some really important things that we require, such as young earth creationism. I'm very thankful for that, okay? And then there are things in our presbytery that are pretty, it's not a required thing, but experientially it's pretty common, psalm singing, uh, uh, King using the King James Bible, but it 's not, it's not a required thing, and actually most of the churches in our presbytery don 't require those things, okay so there 's actually quite a bit of variety in our denomination compared to a lot of other denominations I've looked at, and uh, I think therefore there should be a place for us. Uh, we have so much in common, but I do want to recognize, and I think Presbyteries, general assemblies, they tend to try to acknowledge and allow you know some variety okay um, the problem the challenge can be depending on where you end up geographically that's been especially in the states one of our challenges as session you know if we were in a different part of the country, we would have been in a long time ago in a different denomination and I guess you could appeal to the higher courts, the broader courts, but we just didn't decide that was worth it because we'd be living with the local one that doesn't want us <laughs> you know so it's kind of like don't force yourself into a family that doesn't want you <laughs> you know but we are uh, these are things that you know are on my mind a lot, on Sessions' mind a lot, as we're working with. Um, but the goal is to get in. I think I'm partly wanting to explain you know, why it's been taking us so long and what a challenge it is. Um, but there is a place for leniency, um, and uh, the challenge can be just consistency across the board with these things, depending on who you're working with. Uh, section 4, bottom of page 215, the next part of the Confession. All synods or councils since the Apostles' times whether general or particular, may err, and many have erred. Therefore, they are not to be made the rule of faith or practice, but to be used as a help in both. And uh, before I continue, I want to just make sure I... uh... Okay, I won't bother you with what's on my mind, but before we close, I may still try to look for it. Um, Okay, so we're going to explain section four now, top of page 216. A local church should share its authority in sessions, synods, and councils, but higher courts must not put themselves on the same or higher authority than God's word, like the Roman Catholic Church. By the way, that's the main thing in their mind, right? They can't require things because the Pope says so, and nobody can ask any questions, okay? You have to prove from the scriptures. One of Luther's big things, Calvin also, they were so much better studied than the councils that came together to destroy them. They could quote all the older councils and point out how much they contradicted one another, how the popes contradicted one another, and it wasn't based on scripture, and it's straight away from scripture. The Reformation is always coming back to scripture. But you should recognize the reformed, as we call them, the magisterial reformers, Calvin, Luther, that age, Busser, Bollinger, They were still state churches. I mean, every nation. The Netherlands, it was always about no longer being a Catholic nation, but a Protestant nation. And these standards were always developed within that context. But they were pointing out that uh, it can't just be that because we're in the authority that we can just tell you, you have to do this. It's the same thing for a wife and children to a father. If the father is telling you to disobey God's word, you have to disobey. There's respectful ways to do it. Depends on the situation where the situation where it's public or private. Um, if your local session is telling you to do things that disobey God's word, now these things have to be developed, pointed out, and proven. By the way, and uh, you can do that through the courts and different things. And I, I argue they largely are are not, but um, you don't have to obey. You must not obey if it's not clearly the word of God. I think our time standard, time tested standards are the. Really, the the litmus test for most of these things. You know, same with Presbytery or Synod. That doesn't mean that you leave necessarily. You know, I finished that book I was telling you about. I I just turned in the uh, endorsement for it yesterday. Uh, John Burnham's, um, I think that's the name of it, not Jim. Sorry, a little embarrassed. I'm forgetting that off the cuff. But uh, I was trying to finish it on my vacation and just got it in yesterday in between uh, taking the kids to different classes. But um It's interesting, this book is about, the. it's part two of a four-part series as they've broken it up with Reformation Heritage books, and it's dealing with church discipline, how necessary it is, and the problem when stumbling blocks are not dealt with. And it makes a great case of how biblical it is to have church discipline from the courts of the church. And then it makes a big case about how problematic it is if they don't. And then they give a lot of advice about how to do all the different nuances between the steps of censor that our standards and our books of order talk about, you know, admonition, rebuke, suspension, uh, uh, being banned from the table, excommunication. You know, there's a lot in between. In every case, is different. They give a lot of wise advice. And the goal is always to have it settled before you get too far, have things restored for the edification of everyone. Edification of everyone is always the goal, along with the vindication of Christ. But what really struck me is he's got two really long chapters about what your job is as the congregation. Make sure if you're under discipline that you are submissive and you respond to it and you change. Make sure if you're not that you're submissive to the course of the church related to someone else. And if you don't agree with their decision, you don't leave the church he spends an enormous amount of time saying you don't just leave the church every time you don't agree with a decision of the court of the church whether it's the session the presbytery or the general assembly senate that'll never end it'll go on ad infinitum You don't just go by the court of your own conscience because you can still worship in the church in good conscience. You're not polluted yourself based on the imperfect nature of the local church or broader church courts, okay? So it's interesting how much he spends a lot of time on actually advising the people of the church. You don't like the decision of the courts? Tell them. Try to witness to them. Matthew 18. follow everything. Appeal to the higher courts. And then you just submit and accept it. You know, again... I think I'm going to say this in some of the notes, write a letter of dissent. Ask to have it logged in the minutes of the church or in the minutes of Presbytery or the higher courts. Ask to have your name put on the minority report. And then you move on for the sake of the unity of the church. And he says if Session would do their job and the church would do their job, we'd have a whole lot more unity and a whole lot less sin. Anyways, I'm digressing. Uh, Let me get back to the notes, top of page 216. These decisions of presbytery or synod are authoritative, except in cases where they are explicitly declared to be merely advisory. They are binding on the churches as the sound interpretation and application of the law, the law of Christ, the king of the church. They cease to be binding only when they are shown to be contrary to the word of God. Note that there is a place for elders on every level of government to record their formal minority dissent to a decision with written reasons. And by the way, not just officers, but local church members. You know, we're deciding to deincorporate. We have deincorporated. We've declared association. And we were determined as a session, and we gave you lots of information on this that we went through first, of how we got there theologically and scripturally, okay? Okay. And we determined that whether or not we get into the denomination, we're going to do it anyways because we believe it's most biblical and confessional. You have the opportunity to say, you know, I don't like it. You can say I vote against it. And something as significant as that, we allowed the congregation to vote. And we would not have moved on without them, even though we thought it was so important. We always educate you with everything we've studied first. And we always let you know things coming. Right? We never just throw something at you. We never try to streamroll you. We took years to finally decide on this, to try to work with some. And you know what? This is what Presbyterianism, this is what Christianity churches do. You register your concern, you ask to have your name on, you try to appeal of why, you give good reasons why, not just try to throw your weight around about it. And then you sit down and you stay and serve with your people. Because that's Christianity is. We're never going to all agree on everything. There's a way to disagree. And there's a way to preserve unity at all levels of the church. And we should be about that. And that's what the standards are drawing out to us. Um, I would say this also, um, another example of the fact that there can be some variety here. Uh, some things are advisory and they're not authoritative and, and they're identified as such. Our denomination has position papers for the denomination. They have to be, they have to go to the churches. And actually, there was a paper that was brought to General Assembly this year, but uh, I think it was Elder Detroit pointed out, as he did at the local Presbytery meeting earlier this year, we're a little bit of out of order here. We can't really be voting at General Assembly on a position paper that hasn't first gone to all the churches for their opportunity to read it and the session to respond to it. And then that needs to come back to General Assembly, even if it is two years from now. The General Assembly says, yeah, you're right. I think it's going to go to the local churches and then the churches have a right to report on it, say what they think, try to influence it. And when the General Assembly does finally get back together, after Presbyteries beforehand probably discussing and thinking about, then they can vote on it. But if they do vote on that to be a position paper of the denomination, it is not considered authoritative, which means you can disagree with it, and nothing's going to happen. Now there's always the peer pressure stuff, right? <laughs> you know, but officially, you can disagree with it. A position paper is not an authoritative declaration that must be obeyed, but it is meant to advise and influence in terms of probably would be the majority, the guidance and leadership of it. Okay? Um, that's something to know. Um, and keep that in mind as there are some position papers floating that they're not authoritative. They are meant to be advisory. And I think there's a good place for that and you can always try to submit a minority position paper in response. The OPC has that for instance on a topic that we agree with that's always been a challenge for us to join a denomination. They do allow for it in theirs and they have a minority they have a minority paper on it that represents our position. So you can do those things and then get along. And it's not an, it's not a formal official you can't be. That's what we've always been appealing to in these different issues. All right, section 5, the last part middle of page 216. Synods and councils are to handle or conclude nothing but that which is ecclesiastical. That means church. Ecclesia is the word for church in Greek. And they're not to intermeddle with civil affairs which concern the commonwealth unless by way of humble petition in cases extraordinary or by way of advice for satisfaction of conscience if they be thereunto required by the civil magistrate. I feel like we could spend months on this one. And I feel like preaching right now. And I would be in the minority of the Christian and Reformed experience in this nation. But I'm not going to do that. But I would encourage you all to read that slowly and let it meditate on it. As the civil magistrate has no ecclesiastical authority over the courts of the church, so the church has no civil authority over the governors of the land. Both are under the authority of King Jesus, and both are to serve him by his holy law. Quote, the line between the state and the church is distinctly drawn here. While the ends of the two institutions are distinct in nature, they are not contradictory but complementary. These two powers, both ordained of God, are not intended to destroy, but mutually to uphold and preserve one another. That's Benjamin and Green. So I really want to preach right now. I really want to preach to a lot of Reformed churches right now. But I'm not going to do that right now. This statement contradicts the interests of the Roman Catholic Church then and now. The Roman Catholic Church wants to be the... Authority of state and the authority of the church. And they are. And they have their place in Rome that does both. And they've been very involved in a number of political things they shouldn't be. And frankly, I would argue, and I'm kind of alluding to it, so are a whole lot of Protestant churches, especially in Ireland. And they are making everything about politics. And the gospel and the word of God is being compromised constantly for the sake of offering up ourselves to the idols of power and money. And there's almost no real distinct Christianity in our land. Yeah. Thank you. I'm really being careful, but careful you do that, and I'm going to start preaching. <laughs> now, does this mean we shouldn't try to influence the government? No! Remember what we've talked about. Remember, the context is the government, right? The con- we are establishmentarianisms. There should be a state church, but the church and the nation should be working together for the sake of Christ. We shouldn't be battling against each other. We shouldn't be going against each other all the time. We should be working together. You had to say amen. Why'd you do that (laughs) today? That doesn't mean everything's going to be perfect about the state or the church. But man, oh man, when we put all of our hope in a certain person who I just heard recently in a quote again, literally called himself the chosen one. And do you know why he called himself the chosen one? Because a female pastor, which I really appreciated this week when we were in a certain context, my son, my youngest, well, at the time, not my youngest son, Isaac looks at me with, abhorred that the woman brought up to pray before us was called pastor. But the female pastor at a national level calls a certain candidate the anointed one of Psalm 2. And he loves it. And he quotes it about himself afterwards. What is Psalm 2 about? Jesus Jesus Christ. The anointed one is the Christ, the Messiah. And we're anointing frankly, very sinful people to be our messiahs in this nation and getting rid of anything that really matters of truth and detail because we just want our political power and influence. And the effect is we're just losing it more and more, notwithstanding this major mercy of God to get rid of Roe versus Wade. All right, Mrs. Corson, I'm going to blame you for my going long here preaching now. (laughs) And uh, I'm not really trying to throw a certain... I don't exactly have a dog in the fight. I uh, I just I'm sick of the fighting. <laughs> you know, I'm sick of, I'm just sick of it. I'm, I've had certain people because I have a certain persuasion which is neither there nor here. It's unbelievable. I've been questioned about whether I'm a Christian, whether I'm conservative, and I feel like saying. And frankly, it was a lady. I almost said, I think I'm going to need to involve your husband in this conversation. I started to avoid her in certain contexts. I'm like, are you kidding me? Do you know how conservative I am? You want me to go down the list and I'll show you how liberal you are. <laughs> just because I think your candidate belongs on Mars doesn't mean I'm not conservative. In fact, I think I'm more biblical on this issue. But there is this incredible movement of trying to have control of the nation with the sword of the civil government. We need to pray that the Lord would do it by the sword of the Spirit. It's only going to happen with us It's only going to happen in the churches. It's only going to happen with Reformation and Revival. That being said, a pastor should not also be... Let me see here. where Where did I finish off here? Okay, yeah. A pastor should not also be at the state, at the same time a minister of the state. A pastor, I do not believe that I am allowed to apply for political government so long as I'm an active minister. I think that is not, it's logically not allowed by what we're talking about. I want to run for office, I need to step down from ministry. I want to step into the ministry, I need to step out of office. Well, I'm challenging a whole lot of American evangelism now, aren't I? But that's what we're seeing here. They are distinct, okay? I'm not going to be a local pope. And there was a pastor running for governor. There's a few people running for governor in California during when they were trying to oust our current governor. And uh, I was diligent to see who... I was actually encouraged by a number of candidates I could vote for. And I contacted the pastor, and I said, look, I, I really appreciate a lot of what you're standing for, including caring for the poor, and a lot of things he's been doing with, with a lot of ministry in California, and businesses and everything. And um, he's not on the side many of certain kinds of people might worry about. Uh, and I, I said, here's the thing, you're a minister... Would you plan on stepping down from the ministry if you become the governor? Because if not, I can't vote for you. And he responded and he said, yes, if I am elected governor, I will step down as a minister. So, And I, and I did vote for him. <laughs> he didn't make it, but I'm praying for him. Um, and that, so that leads into our next statement here. We should seek to raise up Christian men to run for public office so that the state better governs by Christ's law over the land so that we receive Christ's blessing over our nation. Wayne Spear gives us this example. And again, Wayne Spear was my professor in seminary, one of my elders in my church where I was under care for the Presbytery of the Alleghenies under my session, and he used to be W. Raglan's pastor out here in San Diego. By the way, he had some significant influence in the denomination taking some changes in what they allowed for political involvement uh, during a, I forget the, I can't remember the name, it's a big name, a long time ago. Anyways, and he, he's a sweet man, he's, he's not bombastic like I, like I am, but he's, he's a man of scruples and guts. Anyhow, he shares this example in his book on the Confession. The life of William Wilberforce is a powerful example of how this can work. As a young man, he was a wicked and worldly member of the House of Commons. When he was converted to Christ, he thought he should leave the Parliament and become a minister of the Gospel. However, John Newton, the converted slave ship captain, who wrote the song Amazing Grace, by the way, advised him to remain in the Parliament and to use his influence there for Christ and for righteousness. Wilberforce labored for some 30 years to end Britain's involvement in the African slave trade. And eventually that goal was achieved. Church courts are not to be political pressure groups, but by teaching the truths of Scripture, the church encourages followers of Christ to be salt and light in the world. I encourage you to see the movie Amazing Grace for a dramatic telling of that story it is in our library, but actually, I was thinking, girls, let's make sure it's in our library. I know it's checked out soon. and it, We still have it? Okay, great. Uh, not, not that I'm looking to accuse, but I thought, oh, let's make sure we still have it. It's a, just a great movie to watch. and Maybe if we haven't as a church, that'd be a good one to put on the list for a future, future movie night. Don't forget, movie night this Friday night. It's tremendous. 30 years, William Wilberforce works in the courts of government to get rid of slavery. And it pretty much killed him, destroyed him. Yeah. Did we? Oh, I'm so, yeah, before you came. oh, before I came. Oh, few. I was afraid I was like, oh, yeah, sure, I remember. <laughs> okay, good. I was like, oh, man, I'm embarrassed now. I forget that we actually watched it together. Okay. So, so we have, yeah. And also there's a Christian biography on him. And a Christian biography on him. Thank you. And uh, the, the movie, I, I cry at the end. It's amazing um, what he does to finally, he doesn't ever quit. And it's really interesting how he finally gets a vote and how he gets certain people not to be there by giving them tickets to the theater, I think. <laughs> and he gets a certain guy to read the the uh, suggested law, who's really boring, and everybody checks out. And one guy starts to realize what's happening, and he goes tries to find everybody. They're all gone. He gets it through. So he he was political. He knew what to he knew what to do. Finally, to get it done. And what they did is they voted that. Ships that were uh, slave ships would no longer be under the protection of uh, the British government from pirates. And boom, it's no longer good business, and so it stopped. You'd like to say you'd wish these Christians and this Christian country wouldn't have needed to be bad business. Nonetheless, he didn't stop till he got rid of it. And uh, that was a Christian politician who did that. We need to pray for Christian men leading our government so we have people that we can vote for in good conscience. And that might actually make the laws of our land the laws of Christ. And maybe one day the nation acknowledges Jesus Christ, the Lord of this nation, as other Christian nations, such as England, with uh, this context did, and I think technically still does. Okay, um, uh, I really couldn't find anything from Thomas Watson on synods and councils, but I've made it a habit. I've got to find something. So to be fair, this is not directly related, but I got a quote that I thought was nice to share to have something. And I think it's nice to remind us that this matters. This is given to us. It's only, what, 32, 33 chapters? Uh, 33. This is its whole chapter in the confession. It's significant. It's being presented to us as one of the main emphases of Scripture. okay? And with that, we don't want to neglect anything like that. And I quote this, although he's not speaking about this. He's actually, as you see, it's in a sermon against the Roman Catholic Church. It's really good, by the way. You can get it online for free. But uh, on page 217 at the top, let me read this quote. And I submit it to you to take seriously everything we're studying in these standards And uh, as we're getting ready to close with our next and last study. He says... Hold fast the doctrine of the true Orthodox Protestant religion. The very fillings of this gold is precious. Keep all the articles of the Christian faith. If you let one fundamental article of your faith go, you hazard your salvation. When Samson pulled down but one pillar immediately the whole fabric tumbled. So if you destroy one pillar, if you let go one fundamental of truth, you endanger all. And beloved, that's the truth. And the church is called in the scriptures the ground and pillar of truth. But we renew, tear away any of these pillars and the church begins to crumble and therefore it is no longer a pillar of Uh, the the ground and pillar of truth for society. And that's where we're at. May the Lord help us to rebuild the walls and to rebuild and put back up the pillars uh, that the Lord would be pleased to use us. And may he start with us. May he mercifully at least not leave us out. You can see the readings for next time. Uh, This is it. This is it. Come back. We're almost done. Uh, I know where you live. No, just kidding. (laughs) I can come and read it to you if you missed it no. okay, so next week of the state of man after death and the resurrection of the dead and the last judgment, so the confession of faith thirty two and thirty three the last two uh, chapters of the confession, along with their corresponding scriptures that are given, and then the larger catechism you'll see the questions and answers i've given and the shorter catechism as well, and for both of them again, remember that if the scriptures i give you I ask you to read that they give you there. Overlap and are redundant with what's already been read by the confession. Feel free to just skip over them if you please. I don't want it to be too burdensome to you. But I do want you to read the scriptures so that you can see what's behind the standards. We want you to see that it's all coming from the scriptures. Most of the time they're just quoting, there's just different clauses all put together from different scriptures. Um, But this is it. It's on the end times theology. It's on where are we now? When is Christ coming back? We're going to give good attention to the millennium. That's the big one, right? Are we in the last days? Are we in the end times? The answer is yeah. Yep. Because Christ has already come and inaugurated his kingdom. When he comes back, the next time he will consummate his kingdom, that's it. That's a real simple explanation of the end times. Come back anyways, I'll give you some more details. Uh, But the millennial views will be looked at, and I will be endeavoring to teach you why amillennialism is the biblical view of things. So some people just checked out and they won't listen to sermon audio anymore. But I'll also tell you, uh, I'm slowly working on a series quoting a whole lot of uh, doctors out there from different persuasions, that amillennialism is the consistent teaching of the standards of the church, the creeds and confessions of the church of all time. And if I can throw out one name, J. Adams says so. (laughs) That's significant in Presbyterian worlds. So I hope that whets your appetite, doesn't turn you away looking for a new church. But um, we're not going to necessarily require that of you, but I'm going to teach you what I believe the scriptures teach and our standards at at least point to. Uh, We'll talk about what we think is allowed and what is definitely not allowed. But I'll at least leave you wondering about something for next week. Um, If you do want to spend a lot of time on that topic... We had a Wednesday night series for quite a while on the Revelation, and uh, again, it's Mr. Renner's fault that we did that. He asked for it. <laughs> he had no idea what we were getting into uh, in terms of the depth. and. Th- I like to try to be thorough, but that's there to, to cover a lot of it. Also, and I'll, I'll mention this next time, uh, when we preached through Matthew, I dealt very thoroughly with the Olivet Discourse with a particular millennial view in mind, so there are a number of places I can point you to where I've really tried to give you everything you need, and so I, I, I'm not going to necessarily, depending on where you're coming from, satisfy you if you're really diehard about something. Uh, but I hope to give you enough to see, yeah, this 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 makes sense. This is what the scriptures are teaching. Okay. Um, uh, with that, let me let me close in prayer. And uh, again, uh, thankfully, we're ending a little earlier. A lot earlier than usual. I was hoping to end a little earlier, but tonight it's Mrs. Corson's fault. She had to say amen. She got me going. <laughs> no, I really I really appreciate all of your... Uh, gr- <laughs> no, 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 no forgiveness needed. I'm just... I'm throwing you under the bus, but I'm really like, yeah, keep doing it. So I can keep it. No, no. Um, I'm trying to behave myself, but um, I, I appreciate that you're all approaching the class zealously and concerned to know the truth and concerned to be um, here sharpening one another Uh, I do want to make sure that's clear. These are our main guidelines, the Westminster Standards. Uh, We don't expect everybody to have been able to digest it all to the same level of, you know, I went to seminary for 10 years myself, for instance, and I slowly studied a lot of these things because I went part-time, I had the opportunity to study a lot of things deeper than I might have otherwise. And then I've been ministering here for 12 years now, going on 13, and I've been able to grow and learn and study a lot more on behalf of Session and the Church, and I've been able to refine my thinking over those years. So I don't, I don't want you to feel intimidated, but I do want you to feel uh, educated, and I do want you to feel supported with all that we're presenting uh, for you here. Okay, I said I was going to pray. Should I pray, Mrs. Regland? Yeah, you ready for me to pray? She's like, yeah, but how many times are you going to say that before you pray? I don't know. I counted three already. That's good. <laughs> She's always so nice to me. I don't know why I pick on you two. I'm picking on all the ladies. I better watch out. <laughs> okay, let, let me uh, let me close in prayer. Thanks for being here. Oh, Lord in heaven, I thank you so much for this opportunity to gather. And I pray that you make us biblical. I pray that you help us to hold every pillar up of the truths of the scriptures, that we would be a solid, reliable, Uh, stable, uh, lasting, persevering pillar and ground of the truth in this area that you have called us. And that you would allow us the opportunity to serve and have service to us as needed in a broader church context that is formal, fraternal, final, committed and covenanted. And Lord, that we would be going about it with the effort of the truth and including the truth of the unity of the church and in the broader courts, and that we'd be that witness, Lord, and uh, Lord, that you'd help us to be about working together, edifying, building up. As Durham's book talks about, all of discipline is about edification, the church, the individuals, and the name of Christ. We pray, Lord, that all we do would be for your glory, whether we eat and whether we drink, whether we meet and assemble. They would all be to your glory according to your scriptures, sanctioned by your authority, King Jesus Christ, King and Head of the Church. And we pray in your name and all your subjects said, Amen.